0: Pray with me if you would one more time. Father, thank you for this morning. Uh, We are looking forward to the conference that's coming up. We're so thankful uh, to be able to have the answers to such significant matters such as why do bad things happen in this world and how is it that you can be good and sovereign and allow such things to happen even to your children. These are pressing and significant matters, and we're so thankful that there are biblical answers to these questions, and we're thankful even for a dear brother uh, in Don Carson and having him come. Give us a great time on that day. And Lord, right now, give us a great time as we study your word together. In Jesus' name, amen. I got a new credit card the other day. I hold here in my hand. Credit card came. I signed my name on the back of it, called, activated the credit card, and then I went shopping. And it is amazing all the stuff you can buy in one day with a credit card. I bought all kinds of stuff. I was just buying till my heart's content, buying more and more stuff and And then I did the unthinkable. Then I took Molly and the kids, and we went shopping. And we had a big, massive family shopping spree. And we just spent and spent. We were tired of buying things. And we ended the day by going out to dinner. We found the best restaurant we could find. And we all got the fillets and everything. It was just, it was an amazing, amazing day. And then what I think was the bill came. I say, I think, because I didn't open it. A few weeks later, I get this envelope, and I think, this looks like the credit card bill. But that didn't make me feel very good. And so instead of opening it and maybe feeling worse, I just put it in the shredder. (laughs) That made me feel good. (laughs) A day or so went by, and I was feeling a little guilty. So you know what I decided to do? I decided to send flowers to the credit card company. And then I felt better, hoping that they would be happy that I sent them flowers. Surely I thought maybe they would even like getting flowers. Who doesn't like to get flowers? A couple days later, I I sent some chocolates because I was still feeling some guilt. And after I sent some chocolates, I felt better. And and I've been sending them chocolates ever since. I hope they think that's okay. Well, none of that happened. (laughs) I just made it up but it serves as a very helpful illustration about the silliness or the outrageousness or the foolishness of religion. God says, regarding His world that belongs to Him, He made it. We belong to Him. We're under His sovereign authority. He made all the rules. He says about His world, it's very good, he essentially only gives one law, and that is, do what I say. If you don't do what I say, there'll be a just punishment. It will be death. He said that from the very beginning, and he, and he says that throughout his revelation to us. He says, the wages of sin is death. Death. As clear as could be, he says that in his book, and he says it in different ways, but that's actually a quotation from Romans. You know it well, Romans 6.23. We've sinned against God. God says the just requirement, the payment for sin is death, and we send flowers. It's outrageous. It doesn't make any sense. This is what God tells us, and we... Don't feel very good about it, so we put it in the shredder. And then we try to figure out a way to God. It's a different way. But as we can see, it's it's so trivial. Death is required. The Bible will refer to it eventually as the second death. Eternal punishment for cosmic treason against God. And, and, and we're sending flowers? Because we're saying, well, if we just go to church... If I just listen to another long sermon, if I just give money now and then, if I, if I, if I, it'll work out. Compared to death, eternal death, which is God's just requirement, how trivial. You say, Pat, I think you're being a little bit harsh. You're being a little bit, you know, too abrasive about this evaluation, a little too condescending. Well, really? Why is it that when you sit down and talk to someone in Omaha, Nebraska, and you talk to them about God and His just requirements, and you talk to them about sin, and you talk to them about what they're going to do about their sin, why is it that they almost, almost without exception, say something about their religious affiliation? Why is it that they say something about their baptism? Why is it that they say something about their religious good deeds? When, in fact, God has said all along, the wages of sin is death. Everything else is ultra-trivial. See, religion really is insane. It really doesn't make any sense. It doesn't even deal with the problem. Karl Marx said, as he is famously quoted as saying, that religion is the opium of the people. I think Karl Marx, despite the fact that I'm not a communist, was right. Somehow we were under this delusion that makes us feel better, at least for a time, that we can somehow do something back toward God and God will be okay with that when he said loud and clear all along the wages of sin is death. I'm so thankful for the book of Romans because the book of Romans helps us to see the insanity of religion apart from the cross. It reminds us that we all are, even if we're religious people, even the Jews, the most religious people ever to walk the face of the earth, that it's not going to get them to God. It's not going to deal with their sin problem before God because he's righteous, they're not, and the wages of unrighteousness, the wages of sin is death. And Romans is going to remind us that, of that. It's going to help us to see that. Why? So that ultimately we can see ourselves as desperate. Religion can't help. And we're going to turn to the cross. And we're going to turn to Christ's righteousness. And remember what Jesus did on the cross. He died on the cross for sinners because the wages of sin is death. He Actually dealt with God in a just way dealing with what God was requiring all along and he did that for us But to see that and to appreciate that we first have to see the bankruptcy Of human religion and Romans does that so nicely for us If you have a Bible I'll encourage you to find Romans if you haven't already found it And this morning we're going to look at a rather large section of, of Romans for the time that we have So we'll really get things moving here We'll look at Romans 2.17 Romans 2.17 to Romans 3.8. Romans 2.17 to Romans 3.8. And the Cliff Notes version of the outline can be written down this way. Three indications that religion doesn't work. Three indications from this text, Romans 2.17 to 3.8, that religion doesn't work or religion doesn't cut it. Religion doesn't get us to God. Even the best religion ever now let me give you the long version. Romans 2.17-3.8 3, three indications that help us to see that even the most religious people in history are under the just condemnation of God due to sin and therefore in need of salvation through Christ Jesus. Did you get that? <laughs> That's really what we're looking at. That, that religion, <laughs> even the right religion, doesn't deal with the justice of God as it must deal with it ultimately by satisfying God's justice through just punishment, which is death. Let me give you those three now. The first indication, the Jewish privilege. The Jewish privilege, and that's in verses 17 to 20 of chapter 2. That's the first indication that religion doesn't cut it. The Jewish privilege, 2.17 to 20. The second indication that religion doesn't cut it, the Jewish problem. The Jewish problem, verses 21 to 29. And then the third and final indication that religion doesn't cut it for us, the Jewish protest. The Jewish protest, chapter 3, verses 1 to 8. Realize that most of us aren't Jewish, but we can clearly see, as you'll see as we read through the passage, if we're talking about the religion that God started and with the tenacity and devotion that these people had, you can argue argue from the greater to the lesser. If this doesn't cut it, then nothing will cut it. No lesser religion could ever ultimately satisfy God's justice apart from the cross. Now, before we get to the first one, let me just remind you of what's happening. Get acclimated. Remember, in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, we've got this preview of what Romans is about. It's about the gospel, the good news of salvation. If you believe in Jesus, you will be saved. You will have God's righteousness so that you can be in a right relationship with God. That's Romans 1, 16 and 17. And then, almost as if it's in a giant parenthesis, although I wouldn't call it that, but then we go to chapter 3, Verse, what is it? 320, 321, 2, uh, 321, 322. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all those who believe. It's essentially saying the same thing as 116 and 17. He, he, he takes a, he, he, he takes a turn, if you will. He, he digresses. He starts talking about the good news and then he doesn't talk about the good news for a long time to talk about the bad news. And the bad news just keeps getting hammered and hammered and hammered. And you get the distinct idea that God wants us to understand the bad news. He wants us to understand the bankruptcy of our own selves so that we can then ultimately turn to the cross and to see Jesus for who he is, Jesus for what he did as our only hope, our everything. The good news, to put the goodness in the good news, we've got to see the sinfulness of our sin. And we've been doing that for some time now. We'll do that this morning. Remember, chapter 1, we saw that the general run-of-the-mill, we might say, garden-variety pagan is under the just condemnation of God. That's chapter 1, verses 18 and following. Then chapter 2, we see that the, the person I call the, the, you know, the, the do-gooder, the moral do-gooderist, the person who tries to have their good outweigh their bad, chapter 2, verses 1 to 16 or so, uh, that person thinks somehow they're going to earn favor with God and God makes it clear, no, in fact, you're actually uh, just as guilty as the person in chapter 1 because you've sinned too. And now this morning we're talking about religion doesn't help either. Even the right religion, Judaism, uh, apart from the cross, doesn't cut it either. It's pushing us into that corner, that helpful good, dark, black corner that causes us to see the light of the gospel like we wouldn't see it otherwise. Good to go? Hope you're getting Romans. Big picture. The greatness of the cross. We see it when we see the gravity of our sin and that's what we're seeking to do. Seeing Jesus as magnificent and everything and our only hope. First indication. That religion doesn't do it for us. The Jewish privilege. Let's go ahead and look. But I want to tell you before we start in verse 17, I would say read this as positive. I'm going to read it as positive. Here we go. The Jewish privilege. Verse 17, look with me where it says, But if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law, that's good and boast in God, that's good, and know His will, that's good, and approve the things that are essential, that's good, being instructed out of the law, that's good, verse 19, and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind. Well, you might see a little bit of self-piety in there, but really, uh, that's actually true. The Jews were supposed to be a guide to the blind. We even read about that in the book of Isaiah. A light to those who are in darkness, that's good. Verse 20, a corrector of the foolish, that's good. A teacher of the immature, that's good. Having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of the truth. Good, 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 good. Wow! For someone to have all of that, they are privileged people. I mean, you would think if if anyone would automatically get their way into heaven and have their sin problem dealt with, it would be them. I mean, this is dripping with privilege. And by way of application, this isn't very hard for us to relate to, those of us who are involved in Christianity in one way or another. I mean, if anyone has more privileges than the Jews, it's us because we're we're actually not only benefiting from their privileges, but then there's privilege based upon privilege based upon privilege, and now we have the, the, the rest of the story, so to speak. And so it's easy for us to relate to this. It's easy for us, those of us involved in Christendom and Christianity in one way or another to say, you know what, we're a lot like these Jews. We have a great privilege as well. Here's how I rewrote Romans 2.17 for sake of effect. But if you bear the name Christian and rely upon not just the law but the whole counsel of God, And boast in God and know His will even more so than the Jew before you and approve the things that are essential being instructed out of the Old and New Testaments and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind and a light to those who are in darkness, even the Jews, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the Bible the embodiment of knowledge and of the truth. That's not a stretch. We've got this kind of great privilege, but that could also mean that we might have a tendency to think that because somehow we're connected or associated with this great privilege, that the connection or the association can, can deal with our sin problem and, and, and get us to God, and somehow it will be our religion that will get us there, which is not something we want to do. It's something we actually want to avoid. We could actually associate ourselves with Christendom and never really truly see our need for Calvary to deal with our sin problem. Well, the heights of privilege now send us to the depths of despair. The tables turned. Let's move to a second indicator that religion isn't going to get us there the jewish problem the jewish problem and this is going to get uncomfortable (laughs) biting rhetorical question after biting rhetorical question and the assumed answer is very obvious with each one of these let's work our way through them now join me looking at verse 21 oh and by the way before we do that i just want to add one thing yeah let's just go for it look at verse 21 you therefore talking to the jews who, who teach another. That, that's positive. That's what you're supposed to do. And then he says, do you teach yourself? Ouch! He's assuming the answer. The answer is no. You know the law. You've got to memorize text after text and you know the ins and outs. You know your way around, all around Torah. And you teach, 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 teach. But you don't do, 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 do. Why is it that you don't teach yourself? What's the word for uh, describing someone who, who says one thing and tells others to do it, but they don't do it themselves? It's hypocrite. This has hypocrite written all over it. This reminds me of what Jesus said in Matthew 23 to the Jews as well in verse 3. They say things, but do not do them. They've got this huge religious privilege. They've got all of the right stuff and all of the right associations. The problem is they're sinners. The, the right associations and privileges don't deal with their heart. They don't, they don't bring them to God. Let's keep going in verse 21 where it says, you who preach, which is a good thing. Of course I say that. <laughs> You who preach that one shall not steal, which is right. You shouldn't do that. It's good to preach that. It's good to tell people about ethics. Do you steal? And the implied answer is yeah. And scholars would want us to know that this isn't necessarily the word that's describing, you know, the bank robber, describing the the heavy handed bandit. They tell us this is a secret thief rather than abandon. Here the thought is that of dishonesty. Then it gets a little closer to home. Let's say I'm going to teach children's church, which would be kind of awkward right now. I'm going to go teach children's church and they, and they give me a packet of materials to use. And, and so today, boys and girls, we're going to learn about we're not supposed to steal because that's what God says. We're not supposed to steal. And, and this is going to be a no-brainer. I can teach about not stealing. And so we come up with different uh, illustrations of not stealing in children's church. And any of you could do this. And, and you're there talking to the boys and girls. And, you know, what, what would be an example of stealing? Well, you know, at the gas station, you shouldn't take the Jolly Rancher and put it in your pocket, you know, uh, without paying for it because that would be wrong and that would be stealing. We could teach that without even prep- preparing for it. And I could also, the next day, working on a business transaction, fudge the numbers or not tell the truth about the details. It seems to be more of this hidden kind of agenda. Don't steal! Don't God says, thou shalt not! But in my heart of hearts, when I'm not teaching children's church, I'm a thief too. It's the Jewish problem. The religionist problem is they can preach a good message. They can teach a good class, but they're sinners themselves. Well, we go on in verse 22. You say, another rhetorical biting question, you say that one should not commit adultery. Do you commit adultery? I don't know if we even need to talk about it. It's pretty obvious. (laughs) they can say, you know what? Here's God's plan for marriage, you know? God's plan for sexuality is, and I can preach this till I'm blue in the face, and I can say it's one man and one woman, heterosexual marriage, and that is the context for sexual activity. And they could have just preached that till they're blue in the face and I could do the same thing. Alright, that's right. That's true. That would be accurate. You say that you should, one should not commit adultery. That's actually what you're supposed to be saying. The problem is you don't practice what you preach. Now he could be thinking along the lines of the blatant flagrant level like we see happen sometimes in scandals and evangelicalism no doubt it went on at times or or he could be thinking about something that's a little bit more hidden or he could just be thinking about the adultery that we all commit based upon Matthew chapter 5 the adultery nobody knows about the adultery that we commit in our own hearts in our own minds see now they're all guilty you preach against adultery but you you commit adultery cross reference to Matthew 5.28 I don't know about you, but as, as we work through this, I think to myself, again, arguing from the greater to the lesser. I mean, we're talking, he's talking to religious people who are committed, and they're connected to, to God's religion, right? Judaism. They've got all these privileges, and he's saying, you preach against adultery, but you're an adulterer. And you think, if that's true of them, again, you argue backward, then then, then, then no religion in the world can deal with this issue. If if this religion is bankrupt apart from faith in Christ, then every religion is bankrupt because these guys can't do it. Connected to Yahweh, God Himself, nobody's going to do it. Well, let's see another question in verse 22. You abhor idols. Do you rob temples? I don't need to explain a lot. I'll just flesh it out a tad bit. The Jews are right in being against idolatry. The Jews are right, as, as Christians should too. We should go to Deuteronomy 6, and what, what is the Shema, the saying, the one key to everything? The Lord our God is one. There's only one God. And if there's only one God who's always been God and always will be God, Deuteronomy 6, 4, and keep reading right after that, what's our responsibility to one God? It is to love God with all of your heart. See, it's not polytheism where you have divided interests. It is monotheism to love God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength. It's to love God with all that you are. And the Jews could preach that until they're blue in the face. And they were right. And we should be able to do that too. It's true. It's right. The problem is, we don't. There's some debate about specifically what is being said here. Do you rob temples? Well, it could have been that they're actually through personal interaction or sending others to do their dirty work for them they're actually robbing pagan temples and taking the gold and taking the treasure and actually making a profit from that even though they would preach against any association with it could be the idea or it could be the idea of of skimming off of the top of the temple god's temple and the temple tax and that and they're lining their own pockets with it and they're saying idolatry bad and all this kind of stuff or it could be and i tend to go more this direction could be talking about god's temple You preach one God monotheism. You preach Deuteronomy 6.4. But you know that you know that you know that you know that you don't love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You know that you don't. And so religion isn't going to do it for you. Knowing the truth, even being able to preach the truth, isn't going to do it for you. Hypocrisy is evident. You can claim to be God-centered. You can, be, you can wow the crowds and talk about theocentricity. You can talk about all of this doxological effect and you can use all this stuff and be right. Here's the problem. It doesn't deal with the just penalty for your sin because you know you yourself don't do it. Anybody depressed yet? <laughs> I mean, this makes way too much sense. Verse 23 says, You who boast in the law. Again, that's right. Yeah, the law of God. We have Torah. We have revelation from God. God. Read Psalm 119 sometime and look at all the positive descriptive terms describing the law of God. It is sure. It is right. It makes the the simple wise. It keeps our way pure. The law. We're going to boast in the law the way the psalmist writing under inspiration boasted in the law. The law is good. But, verse 23, through your breaking the law, do you dishonor God? Implied answer, absolutely. You're right for boasting in the law, but the problem is you're guilty of breaking the law. And then just to drive home this horrible, horrible reality, in verse 24 it says, for the name used to describe his whole character, his whole person, for the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you? Oh, just as it is written, just to you know quote a Bible verse too. You espouse God-centeredness, monotheism, devotion to God and God alone in your right. But because there exists a gap in your knowing and your doing because you are a sinner, unbelievers listen to what you say and they think wrongly about God. You are, and your life is just fuel on their fire of paganism. Remember, he's saying this to the Jews, God's chosen nation. This is absolutely as radical as it gets. And think about in our world, the world we live in, in the Christian world. I mean, you wish you had a dollar. For every time a professing Christian did something blatantly wrong and an unbeliever said, that's his or her God, and thought wrongly or spoke wrongly about God, they blasphemed God because of some sin. By the preacher, capital P, from a pulpit or lowercase p, professing Christian. This is, this is just all too close to home. I want to pause for a second and say this. It's very important. You can be hearing all of this and reading this text, and you're probably going to draw one of two conclusions. You're going to conclude number one, That their religious devotion, the Jews, is insufficient. And therefore, they need to try harder at being more faithful. Or you're going to conclude, having read this, you're going to say, their religious devotion and commitment to God is insufficient. And therefore, they need to conclude that they need help you've got to draw the second conclusion folks see one danger of us not reading all of Romans and reading all of Romans 1 2 & 3 is to again forget about the forest because we're staring at the trees even though we're taking a big section it's actually a small section And even commentators start talking about it and start sounding like, you know what is really necessary from this passage is that Jews and Christians or whoever you're addressing, they really need to work hard at narrowing the gap between their life, between their doctrine and their life. And there is a certain context in which I would say that's true and we should talk about that, but it's not in Romans 2. If you walk away from this passage thinking, yeah, those Jews, they had a huge gap and they were hypocrites and I don't want to be like them and so what I'm going to do is be more faithful in my devotion to God, you are totally missing the point. The point of Romans 1, 2, and 3 in context is to show that we're all spiritually bankrupt and that we can't do it. We we can't bridge that gap. Don't think that way. You read all of Romans 1, 2, and 3, and you're going to see we can't bridge the gap. That's the whole point of why Christ died for our sins. Please get that. That's why he's arguing this way. He's not trying to elicit in us uh, better do-gooderism in the realm of religion. He's not trying to do that. The wages of sin is death. Not trying to, not trying to narrow the gap. Please get that. Another time, another conversation, we'll talk about how those of us who are Christians, who have trusted in Christ and we've been redeemed, we actually, by the grace of God, do want to have a narrowing gap. But, but, but not by passing the cross or ignoring the cross. Well, he's talked about the law. Before we move on to that third and final component, he goes off on, on a tangent talking about circumcision we need to look at this matter of circumcision because at this point in time even though god gave circumcision as a sign of the covenant genesis 17 you see it throughout scripture it was for the jews it was appropriate it marked them as god's covenant keeping nation or god's covenant nation it was it was important and the jews knew it was important but they began relying upon the sign They began relying upon the external observance, just like we rely upon other external observances, and we forget the cross as the way to God. And he's going to call them on it. And let's go ahead and read and see his argumentation. For indeed, circumcision is of value if you practice the law. But if you are a transgressor of the law, and I put in parenthesis there as we've already seen, Your circumcision has become uncircumcision. It's not just uh, mood. It's actually counterproductive because you're relying upon it. So if the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? I, I I don't want to get lost and I don't want you to get lost, but he's clearly arguing in verse 26. You might want to make a note of it on hypothetical grounds because... The uncircumcision is the pagan of Romans 1 and they're under the wrath of God. They don't keep the law, but he's arguing hypothetically to show and to make his point. Again, keep the forest in mind, not just the trees. The implied answer is yes, hypothetically. Verse 27, and he who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, well, insert 118 to 320, um, but for the sake, they, they, they haven't and they don't, but for sake of argument, will he not judge you? Won't the Gentile judge you? which is unthinkable to the Jew, who though having the letter of the law and circumcision are a transgressor of the, transgressor of the law, implied answer is, is yes, that would be the case. And this is outrageous because the Gentile, the pagan, is going to judge us? Well, yeah, because on one level, the Gentile, the pagan, is actually better than you are. On one level, at times. Verse 28 then says, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly. Circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. One mistake would be to read this and conclude God never wanted circumcision, physical circumcision. You can't draw that conclusion because it's all over the Old Testament, it's there. But what God didn't want is for them to rely upon this external sign to somehow think it was going to get them into heaven and deal with their sin problem. There's an extra-biblical text, an ancient extra-biblical text describing what the Jews were up to during this point in time. And I'll read from it just so you can get a flavor for how much they depended upon circumcision. This is quoting a rabbi named Levi In the hereafter, afterlife, Abraham will sit at the entrance to Gehenna, hell, and permit no circumcised Israelite to descend therein. The wages of sin is death. They're concluding that the wages of sin is circumcision. By doing a religious right, you will appease God and satisfy God. Wrongly applying, wrongly interpreting something that's actually meant by God for good and hijacking it, somehow turning it into a works system, a system of works righteousness. Well, by now, <laughs> the Apostle Paul has pushed the right buttons. Okay? He's made it clear, the Jews, boy, you guys have got, you've got every privilege in the book. I mean, you are, you you are on God's team. Opening verses of the section we're looking at, 2.17 and following. You've got such great privilege. You think that the privilege, if if anybody's privilege was going to get them to heaven, it would be your privilege. And then, pulls the rug out from under them. The problem is, you still sin. And God is just and righteous and God is going to punish sin. The wages of sin is death. There's a problem here. Okay, Paul's been pushing those buttons. Okay? Just like you might push buttons with your friends. Just like I might push your buttons. Based upon what do you think you're going to heaven? Well, I go to Omaha Bible Church. I'm a Catholic. I'm a Lutheran. I'm a Presbyterian. I'm a Baptist. I'm a Seventh-day Adventist. I mean, you fill in the blank. I've been baptized. I've tried to be a good person. Never killed anybody. Now we're getting back into earlier chapter 2. And I say, wait a minute. Time out. You you, you just shredded the credit card bill without opening it. <laughs> wait a minute. Wait a minute. You're, you're, <laughs> you're totally missing the boat here. God says that you are a sinner... And that you justly deserve to be judged by Him for your sin. Uh, those are some pretty serious buttons to push. See, uh, your, your denomination isn't going to get you out. The wages of sin, again, isn't going to church. wages of sin isn't trying to have your good outweigh your bad. The wages of, uh, wages of sin isn't feeding the poor. The wages of sin is not joining a monastery or a convent. The wages of sin is death. And religion isn't going to cut it for you. Well, now the objections come. And there are some doozies. Let's move to the third section, the final section of this text. The third indication that religion doesn't work. That religion, apart from cro- the cross, is bankrupt and doesn't work. And we see this in the Jewish protest. And I think we should read these, by and large, as hostile. Even though Paul may be carrying on this this uh, rhetorical dialogue, and even if there isn't an actual person there, this is no doubt going to get heated. This is some pretty good drama, by the way. And I would want to read it as such. Let's start looking at these objections from not just the unbeliever, but from the religious person. Verse 1 says, Then what advantage has the Jew? Or or what is the benefit of circumcision? Uh, Paul could just be rationalizing here, but I take it this is after getting your buttons pushed. And and Paul's heard this by now for uh, many times. As I said last time, he's been preaching for some 20 years. And so the common objection is, Well, fine then. What's the point of Judaism anyway? Is there no benefit at all? And almost to assume that the answer is going to be, that's right. Well, verse 2 doesn't say that. Look what it says. He says, great in every respect. You know what? There's huge benefit. There's huge privilege of being a Jew. That objection is a lame objection. He goes on to say in verse 2, first of all, and I love it, Paul doesn't get past his first point. He never does second. First of all, before I launch on you, they were entrusted with the oracles of God. They were were given the Bible. They were given the Old Testament, is what I think he's saying. Talk about a privilege. God didn't owe it to anybody, and he entrusted his revelation of himself to the Jews. There is huge privilege involved here. There's huge blessing involved here we have got circumcision as well, a sign of a covenant relationship with Him. And if you're wondering, perhaps is he is he going to is this some kind of veiled accusation against God? I actually think it is because as this unfolds, as his argument unfolds, I think that's exactly what's going to happen. This person is going to argue with God and argue with God's dealings. You see, that first question. Is there any advantage to being a Jew, essentially, is what it is? Has this all just been a dirty trick? Is this all just for nothing? You've got to think rationally and logically and biblically. If God gives a good gift in His oracles, in His revelation of Himself, the sign of the covenant in circumcision, God has given good gifts. Just because they don't do the right thing with them doesn't make God bad or some sort of dirty trickster. That's not the case at all. That's what we're going to start seeing as we go to the next objection. Next objection in verse 3. What then? If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? Implied answer is pretty obvious. Well, it's not even implied. Look at verse 4. May it never be. As one commentator said, this should be read with violence. May it never be, no, not in a million stinking years. Just because people didn't believe, just because the Jews were sinful and rebellious against God, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? No, not a a chance. Just because they did the wrong thing doesn't mean that God is not faithful. But again, this is where even the religionist mind is going. When they hear that they're a sinner, they're a sinner, they're a sinner, they're under the just condemnation of God and they're hijacking even of the right religion and doing the wrong things with it, what do you do? Ultimately, in the end, you start pushing the blame and you start pushing the blame ultimately where we always push push the blame. Where did Adam put the blame? On the woman? Not exactly. It's the woman who what? You gave me. That's where all this is going. You push the buttons with people. Ultimately, unbeliever, rank unbeliever, and rank unbelieving religionist eventually wants to point the finger at God and His character. And that's what's happening here. Which again, should just show us the the absolute futility of religion apart from the cross. Because it's just against God. Well, verse 4 goes on to say, "Rather." Let God be found true, though every man be found a liar. I love that verse. It just kind of calms my nerves. You know? How about, based upon the context, if no one on the whole planet believes... How about if everyone is unfaithful and no one takes God's good gifts for what they are? Even if that's the case, you know what my conclusion is? Let God be found true though every man be found a liar. He is faithful. He is faithful even if no one has faith in Him. It's not God's fault, as we so love to sort of try to suggest. It's not God's fault. He's good and giving. Then verse 4 goes on to say, as it is written, quoting from the Septuagint, the Greek version of Psalm 51 4, that you may be justified, talking about God, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Now, when I hear that, it doesn't sound very familiar. We can look at it word by word and it would make sense. Let's do that, but then I'm going to help you see it as familiar. That you, God, may be justified, declared righteous in your words. We, we've got we've to agree with you about what you've said here. You're right. And prevail when you are judged. When we look to judge you, you know what? You're going to come out smelling like a rose, unlike us. Now, let me quote the Hebrew version, which is in our Old Testament. Psalm 51, 4. David, confessing his sin before God, knowing full well that he's guilty of sin, says... "...against you, you only, I have sinned." Now does it sound familiar? "...and done what is evil in your sight." And here's what he says. "...so that you are justified when you speak," in judging, "...and blameless when you judge." David says, I, "...without argument, without debate, when you say I'm guilty, I, I, you're right." And when I evaluate your judgment, I have to say it's righteous. There's not to be any questioning of God for our sin. It's great that he quotes David too, because his Jewish audience that he's dealing with here no doubt would have wanted to claim association with David. All right, let me me quote your hero to you. Oh, and by the way, I'm quoting him in the context of his sin. You want to talk about being righteous in and of yourself? Your King David was a sinner in need of atonement. God can't be blamed even for the unbelief. Well, the next objection comes. And this this is getting pretty detailed. You know, I feel like I'm having a conversation with someone who has been involved in Christianity for a number of years and they know enough to be dangerous. They know enough to take God's truth and hijack it out of context, picking and choosing, and to try to use God's own arguments against the goodness of God. That's what's happening here. Enough buttons have been pushed. They know enough to argue with God. And this is what happens even to religious people, which shows us the bankruptcy of religion apart from Christ. Look at verse 5 where it says, But if our unrighteousness, based upon Romans 1 to 3, it's plentiful. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, and it does based upon Romans 1 to 3, in the gospel specifically, what shall we say? Alright, let me just get this all straightened out. Our unrighteousness, which is everywhere, somehow demonstrates the righteousness of God because you've got Christ then as our righteousness in dying for us, and you've got God's judgment, which is righteous upon sinners... That's all over Romans 1, 2, and 3. Okay, let's read it again and then we'll move to the next part. But if our unrighteousness, which is plentiful, demonstrates the righteousness of God, which is plentiful, in Romans 1 to 3, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is He? It's almost like Paul can't help himself for fear he gets struck by lightning. I'm speaking in human terms. <laughs> this isn't what I believe. This isn't biblical. But, you know, just for the sake of argument, I want to flesh this out, but I'm going to give my little qualifier here. The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? You know, isn't it that my sin, my unrighteousness, provides God with an opportunity to show His righteousness? Hmm. He's judging me. He inflicts wrath in verse 5. That's not unrighteous of Him, is it? so the argument would have gone. Paul anticipates it and says in verse 6, I'll try not to be so violent this time, you just insert it in your own mind. May it never be. (sighs) Don't go there for a second in your sinful, perverted mind. Is what he's saying. The Jews are in a corner. What do they do? What do they do with this God who they say they believe in? What do they do with this God that they say, there's only one true God who's always been God. You should worship Him and Him alone, you pagans. Or God is going to judge you. And now, under pressure, the religionists questions the just judgment of God upon them as sinners. And so Paul, knowing what they've been saying, and what they've been thinking, pulls the carpet out from under their rationale in verse 6 where he says, after he says, may it never be, he says, for otherwise, how will God judge the world? Now at first you might think, what, what does he mean by that? It's not that complicated. He's talking to Jewish people who think full well that God should judge the world, the world specifically of Gentiles. We learned in chapter 2, verse 1, that they absolutely are saying, yeah, Romans 1, God, get them. It's good and right for Yahweh to judge sinners, pagans, those who are not in the covenant, those who do not have Torah, those who are not circumcised. They were all for it. Until they get backed into a corner. And now they're questioning the judgment of God and questioning the righteousness of God. And and, and now they're all of a sudden using these arguments that they themselves wouldn't even hold to. It's totally inconsistent. They wanted judgment upon sinners, chapter 2, verse 1. And now they don't want judgment upon sinners. In fact, they're questioning the integrity integrity of God for judging sinners. You just see religion is ridiculous. And so he says, for otherwise, how will God judge the world? It wouldn't make any sense. Well, let's move to another objection. He's going to push more buttons, verse 7. Or he has pushed these, and now there's more objections. Verse 7 says, But if through my lie the truth of God abounded to His glory, why am I also still being judged as a sinner? Now, if you need to, read it again. This is masterful. This is pagan rationale in a masterful sense. But if through my lie, the truth, look at verse 7, if through my lie, the truth of God abounded to His glory, why am I still being judged as a sinner? You get it? Okay, if if everything ultimately is for the glory of God, including His judgment, He's showing His righteousness, well, He's going to judge me as someone who's unrighteous and show His righteousness, which is going to give Him glory. And you know what? I've got a problem with that. How can He hold me accountable? This is all for Him. This is all glorifying to Him. He's using Calvinism against God. He knows enough God centered theology to know that it all is all for God's glory and God is working it all together for good, and so what does he do? He just tries to use the sovereignty of God and the the glory of God against God so he can, the religionist, can weasel out of accountability. See, this is someone who's been sitting in church or synagogue learning a little bit here, learning a little bit there. And then in verse 8 it says, and why not say? as we are slanderously reported as some claim that we say. First, just have to say that. That warms my heart that people misrepresented Paul. <laughs> it's amazing what I find out I believe when I hear third party what I believe <laughs> Sometimes. And why not say as we are slanderously reported and as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may come. Now it's spun off into some whacked out antinomianism. You know what, if you carry all this through and you hijack the sovereignty of God and the glory of God, what's going to end up happening is you're going to say, well, you know what, this isn't fair, God isn't righteous, God isn't just, because you know what He does, God in His supposed righteousness takes us and we're unrighteous, and what does He do? By judging us, He shows His righteousness, He gets glorified in the end, and you know what, really, God can't hold us accountable then, because He's actually benefiting from our unrighteousness. The argument's getting pretty complex. Let us do evil, that good may come. You know, by now, the complexity is so spun and so tightly wound in one sense and so out of control in another sense. Look what he says. Look at his final evaluation in the section of the religionist at the end of verse 8. Their condemnation is just. How about putting that in 21st century street language. They deserve to go to hell. Mm -hmm. Tell me, is that not what he means? You and your religious facade... Claiming all of these great privileges and when push comes to shove at the end of the day you won't agree with God about your moral destitute nature and you won't agree with God about your sin and you not only won't agree with God you've argued yourself so pervertedly into a corner that you are actually questioning the goodness of God and the justice of God and you're blaming God and on and on and on you know what? Does it say at the end? Their condemnation is just. And that's where religion takes us. The religion. I-, I want to say the only religion that God ever started. That wouldn't be altogether true, but you get the idea. And we can't say, well, therefore it's bad. No, it was all good and good gifts, and it was all supposed to point to ultimate atonement. And instead of seeing the climax, instead of seeing where it was all headed, they turned the whole thing in on itself and it all became self-absorbed and somehow we're working our way to God because of our relationship with God that didn't even exist. And if this religion ends like that in a train wreck and it's the religion, you fill in the blank of whatever other religion Train wreck, train wreck, train wreck, train wreck. Wages of sin is death. The cross is awesome. The cross is our righteousness. The cross is where we get justified, declared righteous based upon His righteousness if we believe in Him. And He wants us to see this. He wants us to know this. He wants us to own this. Remember, Judaism was was correct and set up to point ultimately to the cross. Just like Christianity is, is all about Christ and the cross. But lest we think somehow, uh, we, because we have the name right and we have one up in our building that we won't miss the point, I give you the Old Testament. It's all pointing there. It's all pointing there. You know what? The New Testament. It's all pointing there. But association, apart from the cross, will lead you to use perverted versions of the truth, even against God. And that's what happens here. Religion is a disaster. See the disaster for what it is. See the disaster of human religion for what it is and see the righteousness of Christ and the beauty of Christ. God is loving and kind and gracious and merciful and He doesn't give us His wrath, the wrath that we deserve. Three chapters of deserving, deserving, deserving. And and instead He has His Son come because He loves us while we're unlovely. He lives a perfectly righteous life loving God with all of his heart, with all of his soul, with all of his mind, with all of his strength and loving his neighbor as himself for us on our behalf so that if we believe in him, we trust in him, we depend upon him as our substitute, then we will be treated as if we were the righteous Christ because on the cross he was treated as if he were sinful past This is the gospel, the good news that God saves sinners, capital S. The pagan variety, the moral do-gooder variety, and the religious variety. It's all about Him. It's all about Christ. And we'll end there now. Father, thank You for this morning and thank You for this great, great text. Because it... Ultimately, moves us to see the great, great Jesus. Lord, thank you for your loving kindness and for your graciousness, and being truthful with us. You've, you've told us that we have a, the terminal disease. Not only do we have the terminal disease; we're, we're spiritually dead in our sins. And you give us Christ, so that we might have Him. And you and reconciliation for eternity and for now. Lord, move us to depend upon Him and not upon our religious good works or otherwise, and to not use your own truth in a perverted way against you. Help us to see that as foolish. And, Lord, now as we have this privilege of closing the service by celebrating the Lord's Supper together, even as our time is fleeting, God, may it be a rich and great time for us to respond in a tangible way as we focus upon the greatness of Christ, not just through the preaching and hearing of Your Word, but even through obeying You and doing the very thing You've called us to do. In Jesus' name, Amen.